When discussing American cinema of the 1970s, we likely begin with titles such as Five Easy Pieces, The French Connection, Cabaret, Badlands, A Woman Under the Influence, Barry Lyndon, Taxi Driver, Annie Hall, The Deer Hunter and Apocalypse Now. And because it was a decade when they were so revered, we think of those films' respective directors. Bob Rafelson, William Friedkin, Bob Fosse, Terence Malick, John Cassavetes, Stanley Kubrick, Martin Scorsese, Woody Allen, Michael Cimino and Francis Ford Coppola. But what is often overlooked is how crucial a role was played by the cinematographers on some of those films. And in that respect, there are three who stand as colossi to the era. Gordon Willis lit not only The Godfather and The Godfather Part II, but Clute, The Parallax View and All the President's Men, as well as Manhattan, Interiors and Annie Hall. That day in Brooklyn was the last day I remember really having a good you know, we time. We never have any laughs anymore is the I've, problem. I've been moody and dissatisfied. How often do you sleep together? Do you have sex often? Hardly ever, maybe three times a week. Constantly, I'd say three times a week. It is important to note that almost all of those films were shot on America's East Coast and predominantly in New York, which is where another great cinematographer, Owen Reutzman, also lit The Taking of Pelham 123, Three Days of the Condor, Network, and The French Connection. God damn it! All went along, I gotta listen to him gripe about his bowling scores. Now I'm gonna bust your ass for those three bags, and I'm gonna nail you for picking your feet for Pepsi. So it would appear that Gotham provided endless canvases on which both cinematographers could deliver his own unique aesthetic where Willis preferred a static frame dominated by strong geometric patterns, Roisman's background was in documentary, and so no matter whether it was a policier, a conspiracy thriller, a satire, or the horror of the exorcist, his lighting always delivered intense authenticity. Like Willis, Roisman's work was dominated by a man-made environment. Asphalt, concrete, metal and glass. But if you look at the decade's other great cinematographer auteur, Wilmar Zygmunt, you would be hard pushed to find such restrictions. His talents led him from cities out into the wilderness, across continents and into arenas where the clash between environments and cultures resulted in images that never repeated what he had done before. Zygmunt was born in Hungary in 1930 but fled in the wake of the failed uprising in 1956, but not before he captured some 30,000 feet of film of the protests and the ruthless Soviet invasion. Here is Zygmunt recalling those dangerous, deadly days. I said, I needed a camera, so I, I went to the film school, got the camera, we were shooting for three days. I decided to do some shots on the Nike road, you know, I mean, in, in, in a major circular uh, avenue in, in Budapest, which was in ruins in those days. And I knew that nobody was taking those, those pictures because it was very dangerous, the Russians were control. Becoming an American citizen in 1962, Zygmunt spent the decade working in low-budget B-movies, exploitation pictures, industrial documentaries and TV spots, until in 1970 he was contacted, almost inexplicably, by Robert Altman to collaborate on a trio of films, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Images and The Long Goodbye, that not only marked a dramatic upturn in resources and shift in content, but also resulted in pictures, none of which look anything like the other. For starters, McCabe and Mrs. Miller takes place in America's Northwest in 1902. And for the film, Zygmunt devised a look that would evoke frontier photography. Well, you have to forgive me, my kitchen ain't in operation yet, but uh, I, I could take you up to the restaurant up there if you're hungry enough. 
Instead of crisp images to celebrate America's pioneering and entrepreneurial spirit, Zygmunt left the image fuzzy, grainy, with almost no contrast. He achieved this by flashing the negative, which means lightly exposing the film stock before filming. It is a very risky technique because you can't go back in and correct the pre-exposed negative. Once the studio saw what Zygmunt had done, they wanted to fire him, but Altman cleverly blamed the deliberate flaws on the labs. Zygmunt's technique was not new. It had been pioneered, albeit in black and white, by British cinematographer Freddie Young on Sidney Lumet's spy thriller The Deadly Affair. But black and white is by nature high contrast. So Young was reducing the range. Working in colour is a more precarious proposition. Yet, as risky and successful as Zygmunt's work was, it was completely overlooked by the Academy. Why? Because Zygmunt was not yet a member of the American Society of Cinematographers, and thus he was ruled ineligible for any Guild nominations. A very arcane rule, but it serves as a reminder as to how many barriers innovative artists must break through in order for their gifts to be recognised. The next Altman-Zygmunt collaboration was the psychological mystery Images, starring Susanna York and shot entirely in and around Ireland's Ardmore Studios. Yes? I want to speak to my husband, please. Mm. That's how I'm calling about, old Hugh. Please, will you put my husband on? Oh, Catherine, I would if I could. Look, if this is one of Hugh's little jokes, just tell him I don't think it's very funny. <laughs> Who's speaking, Not please? Funny. In April 1973, barely a month after the release of The Long Goodbye, Zygmunt's work was on display again with the Palme d'Or winning Scarecrow, directed by Jerry Schatzberg and starring Al Pacino and Gene Hackman as two vagrants hitchhiking east from California, back across America to set up a car wash business in Pennsylvania. Detroit's a long way from Pittsburgh. Just call her, plan ahead. Well, that's what I'm doing, I'm planning. Look, if I go back, Right? And I call her, she could tell me to buzz off, and that's it. But if I go there and I see her, don't matter what she says to me then, because I see my kid. Since Scarecrow is a road movie, almost all of it takes place outdoors, which meant that Zygmunt had to contend with not just a constantly changing landscape, but constantly changing natural light. The next year, he was engaged by Steven Spielberg for his own road picture, this time a crime caper, The Sugarland Express. And so fruitful was their collaboration that Spielberg asked him back for Jaws. Zygmunt declined, but accepted the invitation for Spielberg's sci-fi masterpiece, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Avez-vous des maux de tête, des migraines? Having headaches, migraines. Yeah. Irritation des yeux et du sinus. An irritation in your eyes and your sinuses. Yeah. Des démangeaisons, des allergies. You have hives. You have uh, allergies. Des brûlures sur le visage et sur le corps. You're burning uh, on your face and on your body? Yes. Who are you people? Look at this. Yeah, I got one just like in my living room. Who are you people? That was a completely different challenge, as the sprawling production was shot in enormous converted aircraft hangars, as well as outdoor locations in Mexico and India. Mixing a unique blend of in-camera special effects, high contrast lighting and saturated colours, Zygmunt's genius was acknowledged with an Oscar and the next year he was nominated again for The Deer Hunter. A crucial section of that film takes place on a river. Which brings us to Deliverance.
Directed by John Borman, Deliverance started out as a novel written by James Dickey in 1970. America's Port Laureate since 1966, Dickey drew on several sources for inspiration, not least of which was The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell's detailed anthropological examination of the world's ancient mythologies. There, Campbell theorised on archetypal heroes, such as poet warriors, romantic questers, tyrannical emperors and saintly redeemers. Another stimulus was undoubtedly Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, but another, less acknowledged influence was Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. What Dickey did was take that youthful journey and twist it into a gothic tale rich in allegory and, as the title suggests, religious illusion. Four archetypal suburban men, played by Burt Reynolds, John Voight, Ned Beatty and Ronnie Cox, head out to see the glory of nature before the fictional Kalahawasi River Valley is flooded by the construction of a dam. Here is Borman speaking on the Blu-ray's director's commentary, detailing who the characters really are. And you see, these four characters, in a sense, were four aspects of James Dickey's personality. Ed is the uh, careful advertising executive, uh, which is what James Dickey was. Bert is the macho man. And then you had Mm, Drew, because and he and James Dickey played the guitar, and that was the sort of the sensitive artistic side of Dickey. And then uh, Ned Beatty, um, who was aggressive and and cowardly, which Jim also was. In devising the look for the film, Zygmunt and Borman decided to once again issue strict instructions to the laboratory as to how they wanted the negative to be developed. The traditional Hollywood approach to films set out in nature was to saturate the palette in luscious technicolour. There is a vivid, almost lurid coloration that runs through Hollywood's pictures set out in the wilderness. Think of Northwest Passage, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, The African Queen or King Solomon's Mines. But for deliverance, Zygmunt and Borman were seeking a desaturated, washed out look, so the heavy greenery running along the Chattooga River in Rabin County, northeastern Georgia was no place for a weekend's fishing. Instead, the faded palette looked slightly sickly and hinted at something malevolent. Here is Zygmunt again. We had a big scene that uh, we shot for five days and was shot in one location in the middle of a forest. And uh, the light changing all the time. Uh, we had to replace sometimes the sun sunshine which filtered through the trees with some, uh, some uh, of our own lights. So that, that was quite, quite a challenge, but we, we found a way, way to do it, and it was uh, uh, very successful. And in those, day, I, I, those days, I think uh, it was remarkable that we can do that, you know. Some studios probably would have built, uh, built, built a forest in a studio. And throughout the difficult production, Zygmunt deployed the same 25 to 250 millimeter zoom lens he had used on McCabe and Mrs. Miller. All so that when the situation called for it, the camera could be positioned so far back from the actors that it was all but hidden by the undergrowth. And that results in a frame where our sightline of the actors is often obscured by leaves, branches and shrubs. Which results in a subliminal sense that someone is watching, someone who does not want to be seen someone who does not want these city slickers snooping around their territory. 
And that technique fed directly into the sequence where the film shifts from being a weekend of fishing into a weekend of horror. Now let's you just drop them pants. Drop? Just take them right off. I, I mean, what's this all about? Don't say anything, just do it. It's just drop them, boy. But there are other explanations as to why this scene is so powerful. Outside of its content, a major reason is Borman's decision not to use any music. Instead, the real music we hear is that of the river and its rapids, the forest and its fauna. So when John Voight's Ed Gentry and Ned Beatty's Bobby Tripp are cornered by the mountain men, Billy McKinney and Herbert Coward, that is all we hear. Borman knew that he didn't need any music to add to the tension because music would only have detracted from it. Another reason why it works is because of the pacing. It happens so deliberately that what begins as a seemingly innocuous situation morphs into something slightly confusing, and then something dangerous, something life-threatening, and finally homicidal. Most movies would have finished the sequence right there, using the crossbow shot as the climax. But this is what provides a third reason why the scene is so highly disturbing. Deliverance dares to examine the aftermath of violence, and takes the time to see where that aftermath takes the characters. I don't mean in terms of plot, I mean physically, emotionally, morally and spiritually. It examines the consequences. Violence, and in particular sexual violence, had emerged as a new theme in American cinema in the early 1970s, with films such as Soldier Blue, Straw Dogs and A Clockwork Orange all depicting it to varying degrees of responsibility. But the sexual assaults depicted in those films were all male on female. Deliverance dared to take it in another direction, which made it highly problematic, not just for the heads at Warner Brothers, but also the classification board. A similar assault had been insinuated 10 years earlier in Lawrence of Arabia, but censorship under the Hayes Code meant that it was nothing more than insinuation. The code was replaced in 1968 with the MPAA rating system, so when in 1969 Midnight Cowboy depicted male rape, it was able to go quite a bit further. By depicting male-on-male -male rape, Deliverance succeeded for the first time in a Hollywood film to explicitly display the crime for what it is. An urge to dominate another person and in so doing inflict severe and lasting suffering. Everything to do with power and subjugation and nothing to do with sex. It swamps the victim in such sustained agony they are all but drowned. Like building a dam. You push a little more power into Atlanta, a little more air conditioners for your smug little suburb and you know what's going to happen? We're going to rape this whole goddamn landscape. We're going to rape it. Oh, Lewis, my... <laughs> That's an extreme point of view, Lewis. It is. Those themes are evident in Dickie's novel, and Borman displayed great bravery in transferring them intact to the screen. But it is impossible to look at Deliverance and not recognise the genius of Vilmar Sigmund. <laughs> 